Now to breaking news out of Boston, where the Trump administration was pushing an order to the force pandemic colleges. pandemic is causing upheaval worldwide. And for hundreds of thousands of foreign students in the United States, the unpredictability has taken a the turn. The Trump administration is denying visas to those not taking at least one yeah, in The Trump administration and major U.S. universities led by Harvard and MIT have reached a settlement today that would see... More than 200 universities have come out in support of a lawsuit against pandemic curbs on international students. On July 6, during a global pandemic, the Trump administration announced what became known as the International Student Ban. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement ruling lifted the COVID-19 exemptions put in place in March so that international students not enrolled in classes or enrolled in online classes only would now not be allowed to remain in the country. The ruling was met with immediate backlash from some in the news media, trendy hashtags on Twitter, and strong opposition by academics across the country. Only two days later, Harvard University and MIT, joined by over 200 schools and universities, including Duke, sued the Trump administration in federal court. Against the backdrop of opposition, the ruling was rescinded before a judge even had to look at it. As an international student myself, I got caught up in the tweet storm in the aftermath of Trump's proposed student ban. I retweeted many of the arguments in favor of international students, which are mostly economic and political, and I'll review them for you soon. But after my initial fears for my own status and that of international students more generally, I found myself questioning those same arguments. Not for whether or not they're true, but for how they represent and characterize international students, the way they value them, or us. The turning point for me, a tweet by Academic Chatter that read, quote, International students shouldn't be protected because their labs or departments will produce less research without them, but because they're people. People, all caps. You're listening to Seize the Day. And in this episode of PhD, I'll introduce you to some of those people. I spoke with international students pursuing a graduate degree at the Deke University Marine Lab, and you hear about the joys, challenges, rewards, sacrifices, and expectations that come with leaving everything behind in a home country to pursue a better education in the U.S. I am your host, Rafaela Lobo, but as an international student myself, in today's episode, I'll be more than a simple narrator. Welcome to Seize the Day. Okay. Let's start with the arguments for and against international students that the proposed international student ban sparked. I don't want to give too much airtime to arguments in favor of the ban. You've likely heard them before. International students take American jobs, they're potential terrorists, they're the initial link in chain migration. In this way, the international student ban reflects the xenophobia underlying the Trump administration's approach to immigration in general. Enough said. Those opposing the ban saw it as an attempt to pressure universities to reopen during the pandemic. But if implemented, opponents pointed to the consequences for students. Many international students lack reliable internet access in their home countries or the freedom to use it. Chinese students, for example, can't use the G Suite. Participating in remote classes across different time zones also meant some would have to be up at 2, 3 a.m. to take online classes or that professors would have to offer multiple sessions 
of the same class to accommodate their globally distributed students. In the worst cases, some students might not have homes to go back to due to conflict in their home countries or to COVID-related travel and re-entry restrictions. But a different type of argument quickly emerged, one that focused not on the cost to international students forced to return home, but the cost to the U.S. in sending them there. The first set of costs are economic. Numbers from the Association of International Educators on the economic value of international students were brought up often. The International Student Economic Value Tool uses expenses and incomes to calculate the value of international students, and then aggregates this to the population of international students in the U.S. Do you want to know how much that is? Well, for the 2019-2020 academic year, international students contributed almost $39 billion and supported over 415,000 jobs to the U.S. economy. That's right, economically, international students are a benefit to the U.S. There are also concerns about hidden contributions to the economy through international student participation and research. This is particularly true of graduate students, and the initial tweet I mentioned was responsive to this argument specifically. Concerns that valuable researchers might stay and take U.S. jobs were countered by pointing to the many Silicon Valley tech geniuses and other startup entrepreneurs who came from other countries as students. That they stayed and started their businesses in the U.S. is a benefit. The same goes for the ones who invent vaccines or become Nobel laureates. You know, there's an additional prestige benefit to the U.S. serving as their host country. Interesting political arguments also emerged. International students are portrayed as tools for facilitating foreign policy diplomacy. The idea is that they'll be indoctrinated with democratic ideals during their time in the U.S., and when they go back home and reach positions of power, they'll be, at the very least, more amenable to maintaining a positive relationship with the U.S. While in the U.S., they are a bonus to institutions seeking to increase their diversity and inclusion, and they can teach American students about the importance of diversity. All of these arguments may be true on some level, so what's my problem? Well, it's not actually my problem. It's one that was pointed out by Yao and Vigiano in their article published in 2019 called Interest Convergence and the Commodification of International Students and Scholars in the United States. Basically, they show that these types of instrumental arguments commodify international students, equating their value with their economic and political contributions to the U.S. Even the arguments about diversity are problematic. As Yao and Vigiano put it, quote, the diversity rationale promotes diversity for the purpose of advantaging the dominant and powerful group, rather than acknowledging that the disempowered are worthy of equitable treatment in their own right. So the personal lives of scholars are only considered in terms of their influence on knowledge production for the interests of the United States." End quote. So even though these instrumental arguments are possibly necessary in the current bipartisan U.S. political landscape and in a neoliberal political economy that prioritizes economic rationality, they are still morally problematic. In assessing the worth of an international student only in terms of U.S. interests, we fail to recognize their 
and I guess I mean our humanity. We are people. Again, the critique extends to immigrants more generally, but since the immigrants I know are mostly students, and this is a series about life as a PhD student after all, that's who you'll hear from today. Let's get started. First things first, as you can probably tell, the topic of international students living in the US is one that is very near and dear to my heart. I was born and raised in Brazil, but I've had quite a lot of experience as an international student myself. For this episode, I interviewed people who either are or have been international students themselves. I interviewed a former master's student. Well, my name is Paula Chavez. I'm from Colombia, but I currently work in Mexico. A recent doctoral graduate. Yeah, so I'm Philip Turner. Uh, I'm from the UK, uh, currently based in Southampton, which I I guess is most famous because the Titanic left from there. A current postdoc. Hi, Rafa. I'm Crisol Mendez Medina, and I'm from Mexico, from a small town in the South Pacific, Cihuatanejo. Also from Mexico, I talked to a current faculty member who came to the U.S. first as a graduate student. Javier, my, my complete name is Javier Basurto Guillermo. We used two last names in Latin America, as you know. And of course, since this is PhD, I also talked to current PhD students. So my name is Jun Yao Gu, and I'm from China. I grew up in the southern part of China, a city near Shanghai. I am Elisabetta Menini. Everybody knows me as Betta, and I'm from Italy. I'm from Montegrotto Terme. As I talked to these people, one of the most interesting things was to realize how similar most of our experiences have been. As they describe the challenges and the joys of being an international student in the U.S., more often than not, I could feel and understand exactly what they meant. But there was one question in particular that resonated across all the interviews. Every time I asked one of them what they missed the most from home, the answers were all very similar. Can you guess what it is? Well, I miss the food badly. Yeah, first is just family, parents, other friends. And second, I think it's food. Again and again, most answers went to some variation of family, friends, and food. Some of the essential things that makes us human. We all need to eat, and we all come from someone at a very basic level. Some, like Phil and I, would feel guilty about thinking of food first, but we just can't help ourselves. Oh, sorry, this question, my mind instantly went to food related. And then, then I, I was definitely like, oh, I should bump the, the fiance, the girlfriend and the fiance and the wife. Just um, meat pies, like decent cheese that doesn't cost the earth. That really hit me. We miss family independent of food, of course. But these things are closely linked. Junior explains the best. That's the funny thing that why I call my, my mother and my mom say, why you miss me so much? I say, why well, I, um, well, I was hungry. I miss you so much, mom. You cannot imagine how I miss you. I feel you, Junyao. We can FaceTime our families, but we can't eat the amazing food they're cooking thousands of kilometers away. Oh yes, I said kilometers because this is an international student podcast and we'll never understand why Americans use miles. Anyways. This whole food conversation gets to a whole new level when I talk to Elisabetta Menini, or Betta to us, 
She's an Italian PhD student and she fits into every food stereotype you might have in mind about Italians. Seriously. She has cooked for boat crews, she cooked for my wedding, and during the height of the pandemic, she started a YouTube channel called With Betta is Better to teach us her amazing recipes. When I asked her what she missed the most, I was sure she was also going to say food in general. But just like our other European students, she said family, friends, and uh, fresh cheese. <laughs> Um, I can cook the food it's like I can I'm I can cook and if I miss like a certain type of sauce or pasta or whatever I usually can find most of the ingredients like and create recreate it when I first met Betta she had just come from Europe and her luggage was filled with coffee and parmigiano cheese which she wants me to make sure you know is very different than Parmesan cheese. She tells me the story of when she first went to Little, an European chain grocery store, and there she found her favorite brand of pasta. Uh, actually, I was uh, with uh, Joel uh, Fader, and we were like uh, roommates. So he's like, I'm going to Little, do you want to come with me? I was like, oh yes, absolutely, yes, yes, let's go, because Little is European and we have it here. And as soon as like I arrived and I saw like one of the best, well, not one of the best, but one of the better, better <laughs> type of pasta that I usually can find at the supermarket. I think I bought like, I don't know if through five kilos of that, I think it's like, I don't know. I just kind of, kind of like two of that, two of that, three of that, three of that. Okay, let's go. And Joe was like, what are you doing with all that pasta? I was like, I'm going to eat it. It's like, <laughs> there is a sale and it's a good brand. What are you doing? Food availability and affordability are two of the main challenges for international students. A 2019 survey of international students across U.S. universities found that 42% of students find food from their home countries too expensive, and 49% say there aren't options at all. I thought that number was actually really low, and I think this is skewed because of how the question is formulated. For example, there are a handful of Chinese restaurants around here, but when I asked you now about them... <laughs> Oh, I think uh, they are okay, but not very traditional Chinese food. <laughs> and as a Latina, I always feel like the Hispanic section at the supermarket is actually a Mexican section. So I, I asked Crisol her thoughts on food availability here. Well, what you can find here is the Tex-Mex version. It's not Mexican food. I mean, it is Mexican food because... It's created by Mexicans living here in the United States, but it's not the food that I grew up with. Like the food, for, I mean, I'm from the center south. So I grew up eating like a lot of herbs and plants and flowers, and I cannot find them here. I want to stress that we're not saying that American, Chinese, or Mexican restaurants are necessarily bad. We're just saying they don't offer what we miss. Yeah, I miss, but it's not just about the ingredients. It's like going to the street market and finding like this 
like a big variety of like fruits and veggies, fresh, the flavor. I mean, they are the same fruit, but they don't taste even closely. And it's not just about the food by itself, it's our culture is very attached to, to the preparation of the meals. Because you know, the Latin woman, like we grew up on the kitchen. And I remember being cooking on the, like, on the kitchen and my dad being there talking with us all the time. Grisol's transition from food to family speaks to the crux of the problem here. We miss the food, but more importantly, we miss the social experience of food that until coming to the US, we took for granted. Yeah, there's some food you really do miss from your home surroundings, and that's always what gets you, I think. Okay, so another question that I asked was, what are the main challenges of being an international student? Cultural and language barriers ranked high, and again, really resonated with me. When I first started my master's, I had to look up the meaning of so many words. And that really slowed me down. I often had to attend a university's writing center to get help with assignments. And I was coming from a decent starting point. Still, academic writing is a whole different beast. And I can only imagine how it feels to students who come with less fluent language skills. Here's what Javier told me about when he first came to the U.S. It was so exhausting that first year. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it is exhausting. Like now I think in English, of course, um, but at the beginning was like, you know, trying to communicate and trying to just be really focused, listening to the professor and writing notes. Do I write them in English and Spanish? I write them in both. No, no, no. Like I, it was literally sink or swim. The sink or swim feeling, very real. International students are often required to maintain a full credit course load and have strict visa deadlines in a way that there's not much flexibility on how and when they can go through their program. Graduate school is already challenging by default. So being slower, slower to read, slower to write, missing content from lectures, all that adds a great deal of stress. In fact, 59% of international students across the U.S., think that the amount of time spent outside of class on schoolwork and activities related to their academic program is more than they expected it to be. And let me tell you, we expect it to be hard. Here's Junia on her experience. I really found it's hard for me when, the, when I began my first week in the semester at Johns Hopkins, because I remember when I take the chemistry class, I know these chemical elements or compounds in Chinese name. But it's hard for me to relate their names with the English name. So I found I'm a little harder to keep up with the class, keep up with the professor say. And this feeling is not very good because <laughs> you all say all other classmates, they, they know their hands, they say they understand what the professor say, but only you there, you feel so lonely and still at loss. But I soon quickly changed my learning style. I remember the first weekend, I didn't, I didn't sleep for the whole night. I wow. just read the book of that class, the recommended book. I finished, I think, up to 300 pages. So I didn't sleep for the day and the night. And I just searched and write down every words I come up with that I'm not, no, I'm not familiar with. Junya says this feeling has gotten a lot better, and academically she feels safer now. 
but she mentions it's not just language barriers per se, but the cultural use of language that still gets her. Yes, I think become much better, but sometimes you 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 still feel at loss, especially when say when you hear some local or say the national jokes or something when they talk about some jokes they they know what they mean but you don't know and they don't know why they start to laughing <laughs> cultural and language barriers often go hand in hand according to that 2019 survey i mentioned quote students may arrive in the u.s with outstanding academic english only to find that they cannot understand the idiomatic english used both in and out of the classroom further it may be challenging to grasp cultural expectations of when and with whom it is appropriate to use these different forms of verbal communication, end quote. As significant as language and cultural barriers are, they are far from being the only ones. Here's now again. I found it's a challenging for me to, say, rent a house, <laughs> set up internet, so all this living small life stuff say have your bank credit card or something and uh, maybe buy your car by the insurance although they are very tiny not many not seem difficult to some people but i think it takes me some time i cannot overemphasize how significant these tiny things are they are indeed small daily tasks that most people don't think twice about but when you arrive at a place where you don't have any friends or family and aren't familiar with, well, anything really, it can be very overwhelming. And before anyone suggests that we should just arrive earlier, we can't. There are strict timelines for international students entering the country. No more than 30 days before the program starts. So we have to find a place to live, set up electricity and internet, get a phone, buy furniture and live in essentials, figure out how to move around, present proper documentation to visa services, figure out how the school online system works, where to get ID cards, how to open a bank account. Can I buy a car? If yes, do I need a new driver's license? How in the world do I go about buying a car? Yeah, I remember being a bit overwhelmed at the beginning, like trying to get everything and get settled and get sorted was a bit, I remember very almost break down in bed bath and beyond it like hit me when I'd already made so many decisions that day and like spent loads of money and I was trying to sort my life out and when the shop assistant was really helpful but she kept she just I was facing this wall of pillows and she's like are you a front sleeper you're a back sleeper you're a side sleeper like which pillow would suit you best I was like yeah I can't make any more decisions today it's too much yes even pillow shopping can get overwhelming not to mention that in order to make one decision, you often need to have already made a previous decision. You need a phone number to set up almost everything. But since you don't have anyone to call yet, you, you really don't know anyone. It's often not the first thing you think of. For me, one of the toughest hurdles at the beginning was finding a place to live, which I had to do from outside of the US, but I wanted to know I had a place to sleep. Then I arrived, jet-lagged, and they tell me that because I have no U.S. credit, I need to make a deposit to cover for two months of rent. Okay, cool. Can I pay with my Brazilian credit card? Nope. You need a check or a money order. Well, I clearly haven't had time to think of a bank account yet, so 
what in the world are money orders and how can I get one? Not having U.S. credit gets us every time. Like credit score and general like life tasks that you need to do. So I guess the worst thing was trying to get a mobile phone contract was pretty tricky at the beginning because you don't have a credit score. They don't trust you for anybody, regardless of whether you show them how like you have some savings in UK pounds, it doesn't matter. And I remember having to cough up at the beginning like $500 deposit on a contract to get a monthly contract on a mobile phone. Veta also had an experience that is worth sharing in full. So for context, where we are in rural Eastern North Carolina, it is pretty impossible to move around without a car. Public transportation was actually mentioned by Junao as one of the things she misses the most. But anyways, because of that, buying a car is often one of the first things we have to do when we move here. The car, buying the car, I was like, oh, I'm going to like lease a car because I'm going to stay here for a little bit. So instead of buying a old car that it might die in six months because it had like so many problems, etc. I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to lease one that is going to be new. It's going to be cool, blah, blah, blah. I was like excited to get a new car. I was like, ah, yes, nice. This is a good, this is a good deal. So I was like informing myself and there is the lease for three years. I was like, oh, this is perfect, whatever. Then um, I, I went to the dealer the car dealer and it was like checking all the cars like ah oh, yeah nice and at the time like the time of the documents was like okay so show me that and that and your credit it was like what do you mean with credit u.s credit it's like what are they <laughs> was like what is u.s credit it's like it's the credit card they have a credit card look this is my credit card it's like no 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 your u.s credit it was like I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, so they checked for me. And of course, since I'm Italian, I discovered that I didn't have any US credit, which means actually being like, I don't have any debt actually. Like most of US people have debts. So if you have debts and you are from US, you are good. You can buy a car with the lease. But if you are not, if you don't have any debts, but you are uh, pouring, you cannot lease a car. So that's what I discovered. And I discovered it in a bad way. And uh, so at that point, it was like, oh my God, yes, it blew my mind completely. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I guess I just have to buy one. So I bought a car finally. What I love about this story is that you can see better did the research on her options. I remember following her quest to buy a car for months, and she was definitely informing herself. She learned all about leases, but she didn't know about credit ratings. So even when you know what you're looking for, it can be very tricky to navigate such unfamiliar systems. Here's Phil on what he called the of the US tax system. <laughs> I just don't understand how such a developed country can have such a complicated system. But in the US, it's there's so many forms to fill out. It's such a process of paying tax out of your, estimating how much tax you have to pay and paying it out of your paycheck and then going through the process of getting it reimbursed into your bank account. Last, it was a year before last I made one mistake, I put a number in the wrong box. And 
the system decided that I hadn't paid any tax at all. So I had to pay again and then get reimbursed the full amount plus the amount that I was um, meant to be reimbursed anyway. I asked him how he found out he had made a mistake. Because I got very scary letters. I can only imagine how scary those letters were. Obviously, the tax system is complicated for everyone. But for us, there's always the fear of deportation. So we become a little paranoid trying to learn about all of the requirements of being a foreigner living in America. And there are many. Here's Beta again on how student visas have strict requirements on what you're allowed to do, even if it's related to your program. The bureaucracy is very annoying. It's like you have so many rules and uh, uh, you have to declare every everything that you do. There was like a time while I was going with my professor uh, to workshop outside and I have to ask the permission to go for uh, international travel and I suppose to not fly until I don't have the permission. So it was very like stressful because uh, uh, they were not answering or they were not approving. And so you had to call them or have to mm, solicit like a more and more email, whatever. Like, oh my God. So it was like that, it was very stressful. So yeah, bureaucracy that was made with visa and that is a lot. You have to consider, you have always to remember that you have to do an extra thing for that. There is always an extra step, an extra hurdle, possibly, actually very likely, an extra fee. I cannot tell you how many times I couldn't take on a dream internship or a summer job or even do volunteer work. That's right. The fear of us, quote, taking American jobs is so great that we can't even work for free unless it's directly related to our program and we'll go through the proper and expensive paperwork. And to be honest, sometimes it's just hard to navigate all these rules, regardless of whether it's related to our visas or not. And if it's hard to navigate it in a place like Duke, where there are many international students and great staff members dedicated to supporting us, I can only imagine how difficult it is for students at institutions with less support. Fear of accidentally breaking the rules is very real. I'm always worried about the police and not breaking any rule because I don't know if I'm being stopped, if I will be deported for any reason. I will live like, with a constant feeling of fear. I mean, we cannot completely get lost in the moment. We are always on guard. Yeah, this feeling is always present. Like here, I am definitely way more careful about servicing my car, keeping updated driver's license and insurance cards. I am like terrified of the idea of being stopped with a broken light or an expired insurance card. Last summer, there were a number of peaceful protests around our town that I wanted to take part in join the other students, but I just never felt safe enough to do so. There is always this feeling, this awareness that no matter how integrated in the community you feel, this is just not your country. I asked Javier about this since he's been here for 21 years. I, I, yes, absolutely. Even as faculty, um, once, you once you get like a position 
um, like once I was hired, um, because I did a postdoc, and then once I was hired at Duke, um, like a, as an assistant professor, I was able to breed a little bit, like, okay, I don't need to worry about this until the next kind of, because it was a visa for three years, and then it need to be renewed another three years. So even as faculty, it felt like there was always an end where there was a risk that things might go wrong. But but that started to yeah to go away a little bit um, because you feel the support of the institution. However, um, the feeling of not being an American it's it's always it's always there. Even um, yeah, it's interesting with with a passport. And I got the passport so I could vote. Like I got tired of of paying taxes and. And, and with the Trump administration, I was very, very offended. I was like, I need to be able to vote. Now I've written letters to this to the the senator, the North Carolina senator, and and I feel like, okay, they're not gonna kick me out of the country. Javier touches on something I want to go back to. Donald Trump. We thought long and hard about whether to bring politics to the podcast. But at the end of the day, this isn't just politics. For international students, the Trump administration was an enormous source of stress and anxiety for four years, and we can't talk about international students living in the U.S. without talking about how four years of xenophobia impacted our lives. Many academic papers and news articles have been published on this exact subject, and some have noted what they called a Trump effect. Following the 2016 presidential campaign, there was a drop in new international students coming to the U.S. for the first time since this data collection began, a trend that continued through his presidency. While researchers note that there may be other reasons for the drop, it is not hard to imagine people prefer to live where they feel safe and welcome. International students go through so many hurdles, pay so many fees, to make sure we're here legally. And we were always told that as long as we're legal, we'd be safe. Well, it sure didn't feel like it for the past four years. Yes, uh, yes, that's, that's really hard times. I think every, at that period, I check the news every day. <laughs> what he talk about, <laughs> what the new rules come out. <laughs> because you feel a little unsafe. You feel sometimes you may be kicked off the country. So I think this unsafeness is really uh, making me feel not very good. You don't know what will happen. And you, you don't know what, which rule will actually be carrying out. I just want to finish my PhD. <laughs> yeah, that was a rough summer. Well, also, I just want to acknowledge that for many of us, the international experience intersects with racial issues. I've been yelled at to go back to my country by a drunk white male whom I have never spoken to. Crisol tells me she's been asked to show proof of legal status for something as simple as scheduling a doctor's appointment. And most of us have had awful experiences at airports when entering the country. But it can be really hard to pinpoint what is an international experience per se versus just plain old racism. Trump was very clear when he said he wanted more immigrants from countries like Norway and less from countries. But I have U.S.-born friends that are of Latino descent, and they share some of the same experiences. This is a conversation for a whole other podcast. The point is that your original country 
shapes your experience as a foreign student. That 2019 survey shows that students from Latin America and the Caribbean are the group that feel least welcome in the United States. But for all of us, regardless of where we come from, the change in administration feels a bit like a target has been taken off our backs. We know there's a lot of work to be done, but we can breathe again. It was a relief. I don't know if I would have stayed if uh, Trump would have had the wing at the end. Like, now I'm sure I can just, uh, I can be fine. Uh, I can be, like, I, I know that it will be good. I will probably, as soon as the pandemic allows, uh, can be able to go back home and come back without too many problems, without, beside bureaucracy. That was uh, kind of scary. It's like, it was like a little bit, it was like, eh, we're not, I don't know if I want to stay in a place that doesn't really welcome me. So why do we do it? What makes over a million students leave their home countries every year and come to the U.S. to pursue an education? Well, international students are not a monolith. Just like every other group of humans, there are a multitude of reasons why any one of us choose to come to the U.S. And unlike some might fear, a good portion of us does not want to stay. In fact, research has shown that few students arrive in the U.S. with the intention of staying for good. Paula actually wanted to go to Australia for her studies originally, but decided to come to Duke because of the program features and because it was closer to Colombia. Beta can't wait to go back to Italy, and she came because of the amazing opportunity to work with Professor Cindy Vandover in deep sea research. Phil also came to work with Cindy, plus the pay was better than what he was offered in the UK. He already had a job lined up in the UK after graduation, and he's now back home with his wife. The opportunity of being paid while studying what we love is something none of us takes for granted. Javier, Ala, Crisol, and I, we all reflected on the importance to keep the focus of our research in Latin America. We all believe that we are able to contribute much more to our home countries from here than we would if we had never left, and that is very important to us. Crisol is now back in Mexico, Paula also got a job in Mexico, and Javier's focus on Mexican fisheries directly and indirectly provides opportunities for many other students and researchers, both here in the US and back in Mexico, something he's certain would be much harder to provide if he had gone back. For Junel, her journey actually started with her parents trying to push her out of the nest. They believed it was important for her to have a broader cultural and social view of the world. And she cherished her experience so much so that she wanted to come here for graduate school. Her plans for after graduation? She wants to be a professor in Europe so she can keep exploring different cultures. Regardless of why we came to the US or to Duke, what we all share is a deep appreciation of the academic environment and the wealth of opportunities we have as a result. I, I looked around and there were no universities in Mexico that offered what I wanted to do, which was a mix of anthropology and public policy. And the closest university actually that offered something relatively similar was the University of Arizona. So the choice to go to the U.S. was literally because there was nothing offered in Mexico like that. But then being immersed in a group of people discussing papers and thinking about issues and 
and a large university where where everybody's kind of paid to think and and they all, I was in a particularly in my, in my PhD program and then postdoc where there was people from all over the world very interested in, in some of the same topics that that you know for me that was like oh the concept of a university that's awesome again and again I watched my colleagues eyes light up when they talked about the way science is done in the U.S about Duke as an institution and about the marine lab community. No, the, the university is insanely good. And the people that are in the in Beaufort are very, like the community in Beaufort is very good too. It's, but a university also, like it's, it's just a, the mix of it is uh, it's very good. There are up and downs, but I think the community in the Duke Marine Lab is always pretty much there. The marine lab community is, to me, one of the greatest paradoxes of living in a small town in rural North Carolina. As we drive through neighborhoods with Trump flags, we can't help but wonder if some people wished we weren't here. At the same time, we found in this community an amazing support system, a reason to stay, a reason to love it here, a second family. And I think all the people here are so nice. That's I really love here <laughs> because we have a small but a very close community and I also love my cohort they're super sweet for many of us this is an experience of self-discovery of breaking old paradigms I think it's so great to be able to put your culture and your way of thinking in perspective so it's it's a privilege to be able to live in a different country where everything that you grew up with hopefully um, it's up for questioning. I found say spending five years here, I found the biggest change say of my myself is the I changed some opinions on some things. For example, I previously think that I need to do everything in the right time, in the right age. So I think I need to oh I need to rush myself and to do the right thing in the right time. But then I come here and I meet with so many friends, so many people here, and they are so they have so unique life experience and you can see the, the possibilities in them. People should not be limited to what other people think. We do not need to follow the other people's life. We need to choose what our ourselves want. We need to follow our heart. We should do whatever we want. So that's that changed my mind. I saw, yeah, I see different living ways. Say so you can live in this way and everyone respect they do not judge you, you are different with them. I love it. Together, we learn each other's cultures, improve language skills, and cook together. And I'm sure wherever we'll go next, our friends in Beaufort and the foods we share will be added to the list of people and foods we miss the most. And obviously, living in such a tight-knit community makes it very hard to leave it. Yeah, and I think that really comes from, it is a rural community but it makes a very strong PhD community. So you make the most of your surroundings and um, you have lots of gatherings at people's homes and on the beach and stuff. And that, it, that very strong tight-knit student group makes living there very easy. It makes leaving there quite difficult. It's a, very different in the working world and not in the student bubble, but it's great whilst it lasts. I'll make sure to enjoy it while it lasts for me. 
I welcome the renewed hope that a more progressive administration brings while keeping in mind the enormous amount of work ahead of us. With that, I'd like to end with Javier's advice for international students living in the U.S. as it really resonated with me. This is my advice, actually. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of feelings that if you go to the U.S., you must go to back to your country. And there's a lot of sense of guilt that builds from there. That, And I would like students to free themselves from that feeling and just allow themselves to follow their curiosity, follow their intellectual curiosity to whatever it takes you. Because, because it's, you're not going to be more satisfied by going to your country if you're not intellectually stimulated and and motivated it happened to me and and it's so common with um the latin american students i i interact with so i would say don't put that first put the intellectual curiosity and the stimulation um, first and everything will fall into place like i feel i've been able to make many more contributions to mexico uh, Mexican research, training students, than if I had said, I'm done with my PhD, I'm going back to Mexico because um, I have a duty to fulfill. We hope you enjoyed this episode of PhD, a series where we explore the lives of PhD students. I want to thank everyone who contributed their time to talk to us. I had many more interesting topics and quotes than time allowed me to use. You can find out more about each of our interviewees on our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash seize the day. If you enjoy listening to us, please subscribe and write us a review. This will help other people find our podcast. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at seize the day pod. This podcast was written and produced by me, Hafa Lobel. Lisa Campbell co-wrote and edited the script. Our theme song is by Joe Morton. Our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Thanks for listening. See you next time.